Imagine seeing 20 years of hard work come together to help possibly thousands of people living with type 1 diabetes. Today we talk to one of our researchers who is experiencing just that rush. Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilly and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they're working to make our lives better. With me here today is Professor Shane Gray, Head of the Transplantation Immunology Lab at Garvin. Welcome, Shane. Hi, Mara Jean. How are you going today? Lovely to see you. Shane, tell us about the Transplantation Immunology Lab. What do you and your team do? Thanks, uh, Mara Jean. So it's a team of very talented and hardworking people, generally younger than myself. But we have a really strong um, desire to change um, how people are treated for autoimmune disease. And that's a big focus to understand what is autoimmune disease and then use that information to come up with what we hope will be new cures. Fantastic. And if I understand correctly, you predominantly focus on type 1 diabetes. Can you explain the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes? Yeah, that's a good question because it does sound confusing sometimes because they're both diabetes and in both cases people can't keep their sugar levels in the normal range. The reasons that happens are very different. Someone with type 1 diabetes, the immune system has destroyed the sensors in the body, the cells that make insulin. So you can't regulate your sugar anymore because that's the job of insulin in a person with type 2 diabetes you make insulin but your body doesn't respond to it in the same way so that's the really big difference between the two and why is it that typically children and young people are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes whereas it tends to be uh, those of us who are a little more mature diagnosed with type 2 diabetes part of it relates to genetics And part of it relates to the involvement of the immune system. And in type 1 diabetes, um, the immune system treats the cells that make insulin like an infectious agent and goes after them and kills them. Um, In type 2 diabetes, sometimes your lifestyle and longer-term factors are more at play, and that helps explain why we see that difference in ages. Shane... Tell us about the symptoms of type 1 diabetes and what it's like for families and individuals living with this disease. Yeah, so type 1 diabetes in Australia affects about 120 to 30,000 people. And for those people, they find it difficult to keep their sugar levels in the normal range. So their sugar levels can go very high and they can actually go very low as well. And that can be very um, troubling because if your sugars go too low, for instance, you can have seizures. I mean, if that's not looked after, you could become unconscious. And if sugar levels go very high, that's actually very damaging for the body. And so people with type 1 diabetes need to do a finger prick quite often, many times a day, um, to measure their blood sugars. And they also need to have an injection with a syringe of insulin every day to help keep the sugars in that normal range. For many people, you can have insulin and finger pricks, and that is a manageable treatment, but it's not a cure. People still have diabetes. What is now recognised is that having diabetes for a very long time causes a lot of damage to the body. And people might be surprised to know that the leading cause of adult blindness, limb amputation, and kidney failure is actually diabetes. And so 30% of people with type 1 diabetes will need a kidney transplant. Shane, tell us about the phenomena called 
brittle diabetes? Look, that's a really um, significant complication for some people with type 1 diabetes. It's not affecting everyone, but part of that includes your sugar levels going very low in a way that, that are not sensed by the body. So sometimes, you know, you see the ads where someone is hangry. Well, that's their body telling them it's time to top up, get some more fuel in the body. For a person with type 1 diabetes, well, some people, they don't have that sensing system and their body is unaware that their sugar levels are going too low and you need sugar absolutely to live. So that's why it's really important that we have a functioning you know, system that regulates your sugar levels. You told us that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. What precisely is happening in the body to lead to type 1 diabetes? That's a great question. And that really involves 100 years of really remarkable research. One of the biggest steps was over 100 years ago where some very clever people worked out that if you do pancreatectomies in dogs, their pee was sweet. Now, I don't think we need to investigate how they worked that out, but that was the finding that the pancreas is involved in controlling our body's sugar. And then another very clever pathologist in the 1850s, looking at the pancreas, noticed these little pockets within the pancreas that looked different, and he called those, probably in good German, islets, <laughs> and his name was Dr. Langerhans. And so ever since then, we've called these islets of Langerhans. So what happens to the islet cells themselves in type 1 diabetes? Well, the islets of Langerhans are the centre of all the action in type 1 diabetes. They are a cluster of cells. It's not a single cell. And we know at least four types of cells that are in there, in that little ball that we call the islet of Langerhans. And they include cells that make insulin. And if you have type 1 diabetes, you'll know a lot about insulin and this is the hormone that you're injecting into your body each day that tells when your sugar levels go high, it tells your body, oh, it's time to bring all those sugar out of the blood and into the muscle and the liver where it's stored for later use. And in type 1 diabetes, the immune system has destroyed the majority of the islet cells, is that correct? That is in a way true. So what happens is the immune system is very specific and it's targeting and so, and literally when you look at pathology sections of islets that are undergoing attack from the immune system, the immune system is all around, but the immune system is killing only those parts of the islet that make insulin. And we call those the pancreatic beta cells. Now that we know the underlying cause of type 1 diabetes, what are the opportunities for treatments? Look, currently, and I think it's really important to reiterate, there's actually no cure for type 1 diabetes. And people who have type 1 diabetes today are literally being treated with insulin injections. So I guess they're replacing the lost insulin that they can't make in their own bodies. But now we know that the islet of Langerhans is the centre of all the action. One really um, exciting new idea is that these can be replaced with a transplant. And this is something that my team was a part of in establishing in Australia for the first time, and this is happening. And what we're focusing on in the lab is ways to make that treatment more available, more accessible and safer for more people. We can also think about um, an islet transplant in the same way that you might have heard of people getting heart or kidney transplants. So islet cells are taken from an organ donor with consent and then given to a type 1 diabetes recipient 
And that treatment has to happen with immunosuppression, just like any other type of transplant. Now, in Australia, the experience has been very good. The majority of people who've received an islet transplant have good glucose control. They have restoration of some of their lost hypoglycemic unawareness, that brittle diabetes goes away. So that's very exciting. But they have to have immunosuppression. And this is a problem because long-term immunosuppression has its own Um, let's say, complications. I guess the other thing that we have found is that islet transplants don't last as long as kidney and heart transplants. So there's more to learn in this space. How long do the islet cells last and who in the type 1 diabetes community would be eligible to receive this treatment? So we can compare to the success of heart and kidney transplants. So, you know, these will last more than 10 years for most people. But an islet cell transplant, we're seeing 40% of people with a good transplant still at five years. So you can see it's nowhere near as successful as other transplants that we see in the clinic. The people who receive an islet cell transplant need to have immunosuppression to allow the islets to last. And and we recognise that it's not as long as we would like. But the fact that immunosuppression is needed means that we can only give the transplants to people with the most severe types of type 1 diabetes and that includes these people with brittle hypoglycemic unawareness and that is a real limitation because you know obviously many people would benefit because it looks like islet cell transplants reverse some of the worst complications of diabetes which is very exciting. And that's where your research comes in. You've created these genetically engineered islet cells to be transplanted into patients so they have healthy islet cells is that right? Yes, it sounds really complex hearing it back. Maybe it is, (laughs) but that is in fact what we have done. So I guess the the thing that is different about the way we thought about the problem is that everybody views the immune system as attacking the islet cells, like the islet cells are in a way, like in a way maybe an innocent bystander. But what we found was that the islet cells are actually playing and teasing the immune system and they are provoking the immune attack. And we at Garvin, when we found this out, thought, well, this could, is an interesting opportunity to change the whole paradigm of islet transplantation and probably transplantation and autoimmunity in general by thinking about how the tissue or the organ, the islet cell in this case, contributes to the immune attack. And we found that the tissue is very inflammatory and like, I guess, the, the bullfighter going in the ring waving the red flag. And our therapy is to take away the red flag so the islets are no longer inflamed. And in what we call our preclinical studies, we found we could get transplant survival of islets in diabetic animals without using immunosuppression. Wow, that is super exciting. So what's the next step? So the next step is really even more exciting. And I appreciate your <laughs> enthusiasm, Marajine. We have... With generous support from the uh, through the MRFF um, fund from the federal government, received funding to support a first in human safety study, where we will be engineering human islet cells with a new drug that will make them anti-inflammatory, and we will be transplanting those into patients again, a special group of patients with type one diabetes, and we will be seeing if we can improve outcomes without using and needing heavy immunosuppression. Amazing. And how confident are you that this initiative is going to work? Super confident.
So what are the next steps? If the clinical trial is successful, do we then see it expand across the nation, across the world? Yes, this is a very complex series of steps. The first will be a safety study in a small number of people, and then, of course, that will be very carefully reviewed. And if the positive signs are there, you're absolutely right, we would then do a slightly larger cohort. There's still a long way to go before it becomes an approved therapy, and I think it's worthwhile to mention that most drugs, sometimes it's a decade, right, to get things really where they're rolling out. But we're really hoping that we'll be transplanting the first patients in the next two to three years, and we'll be rolling that out to maybe a dozen within five, and then we'll have the data to really look at the next steps. We've talked about this being 20 years in the making. Take us back to the beginning. What set you on this path and why type 1 diabetes? Oh, that's an interesting question. So this is a bit more personal. Um, I was a trainee, a postdoctoral fellow, it was called, at Harvard Medical School in the late 90s. And one of my mentors at the time, um, Christiane Ferran, if you're listening, hi, but she was a nephrologist and would take me on ward rounds. As we discussed, diabetes is the leading cause of kidney disease in our country and around the world. And a lot of the, her patients had diabetes. And seeing that with my own eyes really changed me. And I thought, you know, if I can do something to help people with you know, these sorts of situ- you know, these sort of complications, that would be amazing. So I actually reorientated my <laughs> immunology focus to actually start working on type 1 diabetes. Shane, what gets you out of bed in the morning and what drives you? Science can be a tough gig with lots of setbacks along the way. So how do you keep optimistic and passionate? Very tough question. I think I'm just optimistic. It's the smell of coffee. I like. I get up early. I always love the sunrise. These are a couple of parrots that always come to my windowsill. They're kind of cute. Look, I love what I do. I think it's pretty amazing to have the opportunity to just think about how the world works. And it's pretty amazing to think that you, know, you can go to work to not only investigate how the world works and the amazingness of the human body, how that works, but then also use that to improve the lives of people. That's a bit of a buzz, I, I think. What got you into science in the beginning? Did you always want to be a scientist? Well, you're really outing me. So I'm a full-on nerd. I've just always loved the world, how things were made. In fact, <laughs> my mum actually just recently told me this funny story. She, I don't know, I must have been under 10, and I was lying under a bush, she was watering the garden, apparently. This is how she says it. Apparently, I asked her, I said, Mum, how come the spider walks on the spider web and doesn't get stuck, but all the insects do? Now, I don't, my mum's not an entomologist, so she didn't really have an answer, but I think she was just saying, You're a nerd from the get go, and we're just interested in things. <laughs> what does a typical day look like for you at Garvin? A typical day is pretty exciting in the way of working with people in the lab. So there's a fantastic element in science where there's a lot of big training component, training of the next generation of future leaders and scientists and translators. And they're what we would call um, at Garvin, we have a lot of PhD students and uh, who are doing their doctoral studies. And you know that is an amazing thing because they bring so much excitement and that sort of youthful energy into the lab and curiosity which you know, is just a fantastic element. So that, that is part of the day is that just enjoying the discovery with new minds. That, that's pretty cool. 
And what's the next big goal for Professor Shane Gray? Well, if it wasn't for COVID, I would have climbed Everest Base Camp and across into the Gokyo Lakes. So that's definitely on the list. From the science goal, the real big ambition is to carry what we're doing now through, get it into our first in human safety study, but then also look at how the impact of what we're developing here could have for more autoimmune diseases beyond type 1, so a real staged kind of long-term approach. And what would some of the other diseases include? Well, I think the idea that the tissue, the islet cell, is contributing to annoy and provoke the immune system, you know, if you start thinking about that conceptually, that you could start asking questions about most autoimmune diseases because the tissue has been destroyed by the immune system. You could talk about um, allografts in hearts and kidneys. But you could also uh, maybe flip the paradigm and start thinking even where, you know, could we invert our knowledge and start thinking about well, maybe where you don't have enough immunity and maybe we could do things in this direction to provoke immunity in cancer so you get better anti-cancer response. And I think... These are the sort of areas we're starting to explore. Now, Shane, before you go, we've got to ask you the fast five. Uh-oh, One, scary. <laughs> what do you do in your spare time, assuming you have any? Uh, I do love going wilderness trekking. I do a lot of that. Favourite music? Ooh, I've just bought Max Richter's Blue Notebook album and it's fantastic. Heroes, heroines? My mum. And your biggest fail? Oh, That's hard, isn't it? Because he's been a lot, sadly. Um, Science is littered with things that didn't work. Um, But, you know, one big fail which was kind of irritating, which um, fits back with one of my life goals, was I was trying to get across to um, Nepal to climb Everest Base Camp just as COVID was coming through the world and I figured I could beat the wave. Fail. Fail. (laughs) Biggest success. I'm pretty chuffed about where we are now and my daughter. Thank you so much, Professor Shane Gray. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Mara Jean. I've really enjoyed being here today. Thanks. If you'd like to know more about Professor Shane Gray's research or the work of the Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilly. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.